are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to part two of our series on alcohol use disorders. We are discussing outpatient and inpatient management of alcohol withdrawal, severity of alcohol withdrawal, initial labs and medications required. We have Dr. Paula Cook, who is excellent at management of alcohol withdrawal with many years of experience. Let's dive in. All right. This is the age-old question, inpatient versus outpatient management, using the pause scale, so prediction of alcohol withdrawal severity scale. And what you've got to look at is first history of complicated withdrawal, and their CWA score. And if they have a CWA score greater than 10, what's their medical or other psychiatric comorbidities? You know, what their current medical status is. Is this this person already dehydrated, poor oral intake, electrolyte disturbances, and co-occurring other substance use disorders? And then age, Paula. So what's your cutoff? That's a good question. I mean, I think when you're assessing whether or not a patient is a good candidate for outpatient withdrawal management, you kind of get a general gestalt of their health, you know, not only their physical age, but their biological age, their true age. And unfortunately, with people who require alcohol withdrawal management, a lot of them are, they're older than their true age. So I think anyone over 60, and I, I don't have evidence to back this up clinically, anyone over 60, I really identify as high risk for adverse events while you're managing withdrawal. They're more likely to get delirium. They're more likely to have electrolyte abnormalities ataxia, Wernicke's encephalopathy, etc. However, younger people may have really significant and serious withdrawal as well. I think it just depends on the length of time they've been drinking, how heavily they've been drinking, and how many withdrawal episodes they've had in the past. So age is kind of a big category. It's not only how old you are physically, it's what's your age as an alcohol user, and how many times have you been through withdrawal, and what has it been like for you? Absolutely. The pause scale is into two parts. So you have basically your threshold criteria. Part A is have you consumed any um, any amount of alcohol within the past 30 days or did the patient have a blood a positive blood alcohol level upon admission? If if you haven't answer yes then you proceed with the test. So and then you're going to go through 10 questions. Have you ever experienced previous episodes of alcohol withdrawal? Have you ever experienced withdrawal seizures or DTs? And have they been in alcohol rehabilitation services? And this is ever So this is lifetime, so it's important to bring that up. And have you ever experienced blackouts? Have you ever combined alcohol with downers like benzodiazepines or barbiturates in the past 90 days? And have you ever combined alcohol with any other substance use during the past 90 days? So we're getting, so we're hitting those things of comorbidities of or other co-substance use. And then part C is based on the patient's blood alcohol level presentation. Is it greater than 200? And is there any evidence of increased autonomic activity? I think that's really important. And you can, you've already probably assessed this as the patient came in. Is the heart rate greater than 120? 
and tremor, sweating, agitation, nausea. That's coming off your CWA score. Then you score that score. Maximum score is equal to 10. The greater the number of the positive findings, the higher risk of the development of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. A score greater than four is considered high risk. Exactly. So any of these questions, if the patient answers yes to any of those questions, that's a point. So if they answer yes to four of those 10, they have a risk of complicated withdrawal or of severe withdrawal. So that's what this tool is for. Uh, Maldonado and all, they, you know, they studied this and they found it to be quite helpful in determining who needs to be monitored for severe withdrawal. And it can be very helpful for people who are coming in to the hospital for another reason. So say they're coming in for a scheduled hip replacement or knee replacement, etc. You can give them a pause scale to determine what the risk is that they may experience alcohol withdrawal while admitted on your service. If you have someone coming in and presenting for management of alcohol withdrawal, this is a useful tool as well. Some of the questions on this scale rely on the fact that the patient is currently either intoxicated or in withdrawal, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They either have a blood alcohol level on presentation of greater than 200, or they have evidence of increased autonomic activity. Basically, they've got tachycardia and then visible symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. So if you're doing an assessment and someone's not having any of those clinical signs, you have to really base your assessment on patient interview and what they have experienced in the past. I always use the example of a history of pulmonary embolism with medical students and residents. And I say, you know, just think about how pulmonary embolism plays into almost every differential diagnosis ever. And the most important history question you can capture for someone that you're working up for a pulmonary embolism is, have they ever had a pulmonary embolism before? So when you are trying to predict if someone is going to have severe alcohol withdrawal, your most reliable question is have they ever experienced previous episodes of alcohol withdrawal? And if so, what were they like? What was it like? I think that you gather quite a lot of information. And it's quite surprising. You would think that it's a linear relationship that people who drink X amount of grams of alcohol for so many years equals this you know, severity of alcohol withdrawal. And it's actually not true. You know, it's true to a certain extent. You can expect someone who's drinking a handle or a liter a day of vodka for the past five years to experience withdrawal. However, I've seen many people who have broken the rules in both directions. So people who've been drinking very, very heavily for a long time who don't experience very severe withdrawal and people who say, and for all, you know, point indication, do not drink very heavily, have very severe and complicated withdrawal. So this is just a tool, but it can be helpful for you in determining who may or may not be more at risk. It's Monday afternoon, and the person shows up and says, Doc, I want to quit drinking. And and what do you do? And you've got to start somewhere. Right. right. Exactly. And so, so, you know, you exactly. And a lot of times they have a reason, you know, for them to want you to help them. They've tried on their own and they can't yes, stop. And your exactly. Your inclination may be to want to send them to the hospital, which is often the right thing to do, but they may have reasons why they can't do that or are not willing to do that, but you still want to help them, right? 
you don't yeah. want to just say no. You're just you got to just keep drinking. That's not an option. So we have to stop and think. Well, who is appropriate for outpatient management? Who should be referred inpatient? And who could start outpatient and be referred inpatient if things aren't going well? And how do we monitor that person? And I think that's what's so important is with this attitude that we're only sending everyone inpatient. And most, I'll be honest, most of the time they do require that. We are going to still be sending them inpatient, but there's going to be that select few if we are able to screen appropriately that can be managed outpatient safely. But I think that's the key with the right screening and education. Then there can be, this can be done safely. Yeah, and I mean, I I have to admit, I I I do more outpatient management of withdrawal. Um, I have done quite a lot of it than I would probably have been comfortable with, but I feel kind of feel quite experienced managing these folks. Uh, and I think you have to have that clinical acumen where you know maybe someone is is not the best candidate, but if you don't uh, provide some kind of plan for them. The alternative is even worse. Does that yeah. make sense? However, you're never held it, right? So someone can't threaten you to manage their withdrawal in the outpatient setting. Um, and if you don't feel like it's safe with them just keeping on drinking, like that's not fair for them to just say, well, doc, if you don't help me, I'm just going to keep drinking. And you and they've had a history of five seizures and delirium and you can hold your ground. Uh, but I do think it's good to know how to manage with both inpatient and outpatient. And especially now, I think we have more ways to do that other than just benzodiazepines. Outpatient management. And this is where, as medicine, we can do a better job. I think in the old days, everyone was just given Librium and they still are. And that's really not the protocol anymore. And so I think this is the take-home message for today is for outpatient management or alcohol use disorders and withdrawal, it is no benzodiazepines, right? No benzodiazepines for right. outpatient. This for is what outpatient. We're talking about yeah, so. and it's kind of controversial. It's sticky because you know yes. you're looking up to date. You look up you know any papers, but the management for for withdrawal from alcohol is benzodiazepines, right? You either it depends yeah. on your institution or where you were trained, but you either use diazepam or lorazepam or chlordiazepoxide. However, um, what we see is for some patients may do well. I mean, it's not black and white. However, the majority of patients, um, it's not appropriate to send them home with benzodiazepines. They need monitoring if they're going to be on these medications. The risk of them continuing to drink and take benzodiazepines on top of it's very high or to, uh, you know, take more than prescribed of the benzodiazepines or to get in this habit where they then just keep coming back in this cycle where they just need, um, you know, a short-term prescription of lorazepam for withdrawal. And really what they're doing is uh, they're just treating rebound anxiety and withdrawal while they're continuing to drink and cycle through. I've seen that happen a lot of times. I think. Oh, I have a patient who does this regularly, goes to the ER gets a prescription for, you know, for their benzodiazepine and takes that for three or four days and continues with drinking. And just and this is so severe. And so we're not treating. And the really reality is we have good data that shows we can use the anticonvulsants. They reduce the GABA activity. They enhance the glutamate. They're treating the withdrawal. And so you can do the 
the gabapentin, the valproic acid, the carbamazepine. And we have information. So Malcolm and Merrick from both 2002 and 2009, both those studies show that gabapentin and carbamazepine reduce post-withdrawal drinking similar to lorazepam. So we can, you know, so it's, the data is there. It shows that. Do you usually do valproic acid, carbamazepine, or gabapentin? Well, yeah, you can use. I can use any of those. They all have been studied, and um, it's an area of really of interest because you know to have these alternatives uh, for patients, it opens up a whole new avenue and opportunity for people to kind of stay functioning in their home setting and maybe work or Mm -hmm. um, not have to spend money for inpatient an inpatient stay and also we're up against insurance refusing to pay for people to be admitted and so what else are we supposed to do but I would say Darlene I most commonly use gabapentin uh, for outpatient management of withdrawal I do use valproic acid frequently especially in a certain patient and then carbamazepine is really a good tool in your pocket because it's so cheap and it's fairly easy to dose. You know, the, the limiting factor with carbamazepine, obviously, is it's a bit of a, an annoying medication in terms of it induces its own metabolism and it has many drug-drug interactions. However, if I have an unfunded patient who otherwise doesn't have medications that will interact with carbamazepine, I've definitely used it. And I use it as an augmentation medication with benzos for inpatient withdrawal. That's very complicated, but that's another story. But I would say my first go-to would be gabapentin. And you can dose gabapentin up quite high, even in a gabapentin-naive patient, because they're so tolerant to alcohol uh, that there's some crossover in terms of the brain's ability to tolerate high-dose gabapentin. So they had this chronic GABAergic um, agonism and antagonism. And once you uh, take away alcohol, you've got, you know, reduced GABA activity. So patients feel so activated, so anxious. They have CNS activation, etc. Gabapentin, even though it acts quite differently to both alcohol and benzodiazepines, it does seem to help modulate some of those symptoms. So you can use 400, even up to 800 milligrams TID, and you can do it for two days and then start stepping it, stepping it down. So a typical taper might be 400 milligrams TID for two days, then 300 milligrams TID for two days, 200 milligrams TID for two days, 100 TID for two days, and then stop. That would be someone who's maybe a moderate drinker, doesn't have very severe withdrawal. If you have someone who's really been drinking very heavily and you're worried that their symptoms are more severe, well, hopefully you'd send them inpatient. If that's not an option, then I would do even more gabapentin than that, like 800 four times a day uh, for two or three days, and then step it down. And a lot of patients actually feel much better on gabapentin. It helps reduce, you know, protracted withdrawal. And so you can maintain them on that medication for a couple of months during the time their brain is trying to recover. Uh, Because many patients who've been drinking heavily when they stop drinking, they have persistent insomnia and anxiety and sweats uh, that go on and on. And that tends to be a big uh, trigger for return to drinking. Classic, the similar pause, the post-acute withdrawal syndrome that you see right. with benzodiazepines. And I think that helps to prevent that relapse to drinking. Right. We'll talk about it later, but when, yeah, sometimes I will use that along with their medication yeah. to prevent them with cravings, but something to help them with yeah. those withdrawal symptoms for that first one to two months. To No, I wouldn't... Um 
give them, you know, do an outpatient management of alcohol withdrawal without having a conversation with them that they need to be monitored closely. So typically I see them in clinic every day and I get vital signs on them in a CWAS scale or I have responsible adult who's at home with them report on how they're doing. So if it's over a weekend, you know, they text me or call the on-call provider and let them know if there are any issues. Uh, Also, I require that there be an adult in the home that is observing and chaperoning the process. You'd never want to have someone withdraw on their own at home in case they have a seizure event. I I think this is a really important point. And sometimes this is your younger ones, your 20-somethings, they're living, they may be living alone or your older patients. This is when I tell them you need to go stay with a friend or a family member or they need to come stay with you during this process. And we have them sign a release and I say, can we either this person needs to come with you or give us permission to contact them so that we can make that phone call, you know, either before they leave the office or that day to touch base with this support person so that I know that this person is not going to be alone so that we can reinforce that behavior. And they can sometimes assist in making sure that this person's brought into our clinic the next day. Like you said, a CWA score and a vital sign check. Exactly. that. And then once they're stabilized and consistent, CWAS scores below below five and doing well, then we do we can start following up on days four or five by phone. But we make sure that this person is continuing to stabilize. I think that follow up is what's key. I'm really worried that I've seen you know sometimes presenting in emergency care settings and urgent cares, and they are leaving with a prescription for benzodiazepines with no follow up. And that's what we, right. we follow-up is just as important in this situation. We can make sure that that's arranged. Exactly. I, I also, um, I agree with you on that. So as well as having a chaperone and having somewhere and a release to talk to that person, as well as gabapentin, I um, always make sure people are taking thiamine. So thiamine, yeah. 100 milligrams a day, folic acid. I just give them a gram a day and a multiple vitamin. I encourage them to stay really hydrated and without the ability to have um, their labs checked every day, I encourage them to drink and eat kind of a a healthy whole food diet that includes lots of fruits and vegetables. That way I kind of feel that they are getting potassium and magnesium in, in amounts that will replete any losses that they have. Now, if it's someone who has chronic kidney disease or is on many on antihypertensives, on diuretics, there are people that I wouldn't manage in the outpatient setting because I'd yes. be worried about hyponatremia, hypokalemia, hypomag, etc. But I try and encourage people to stay hydrated and to eat a variety of healthful whole foods. And uh, even though there's no evidence to supplement with magnesium, people tolerate 400 milligrams of magnesium oxide just fine. And so I'll often have them take that in the evenings. It helps with sleep and it gives me a little bit of confidence that I'm not. they're not going to dip into a low normal or a low mag level. And we do know that low magnesium levels contribute um, or lower the seizure threshold. So I just want to give myself a little bit of um, safety there. And then the last medication that I actually will prescribe, and I started doing this about two years ago, is uh, clonidine. I will do that for people who are having more anxiety and having more of that kind of somatic sense of panic or um, palpitation or rapid heart rate. A little bit of clonidine tends to help with the adrenergic system activation, obviously. And what we're learning about withdrawal syndromes is that some of that 
anti-reward system that kicks in when people stop using their drugs of choice really drives people back to reuse. And so we can settle that down with something like monodine or prazosin. People do quite well. So you have to be quite careful, obviously, that you don't make them hypotensive, monitoring their vitamins when they come in every day. But I really like using some clonidine, either PRN or putting a patch on for a week and then tapering them off of that after they've gone through the initial withdrawal period. I think, again, you bring up an important point. Healthy patients are going to be the ones that are going to tolerate this. Someone who's got multiple other comorbidities and medications, you're not going to be able to use this in. Those work great. That clonidine really helps with those kind of like high agitated patients. Exactly, exactly. And and gabapentin, you know, it's my first choice. However, sometimes you'll have folks come in who either don't tolerate gabapentin or they're on it already, um, in which case, yeah. you know, they're tolerant to it and I don't want to just super load them. So that's when I'll use valproic acid or if I feel someone would benefit from that anyway, um, or carbamazepine. Like, for example, I have a patient who this week um, was coming in. He's been drinking on and off since he got out of prison. And so he hasn't resumed kind of his normal intake from prior prison, but he's just begun to re-drink between the time he was incarcerated to the time that he's presenting for residential treatment. I'm a, I am manage a large residential program. I do worry that he's going to have some withdrawal, but he's starting to drink in the morning to qualm anxiety and sweats. And he has a history of domestic violence. He's, he has uh, some mood dysregulation. And so I've put him on valproic acid for the next next two weeks, I'll get a level on him, obviously, and it maybe we'll even continue him on it. Using that, starting quite high, especially those in psychiatry will think, oh my gosh, what are you doing? But because again, people have high tolerance to alcohol, they do quite well with this, either 500 BID or 500 TID, and then you can either taper it from there, or you can maintain them on it if it seems to help stabilize cravings, withdrawal, and mood and can be very, very helpful. But don't forget to check kidney and liver function and a VPA level five to seven days after you start it so you're not making people toxic. I, I actually like valproic acid. I think it's a good mood stabilizer. And I that's one I've actually used quite frequently. I don't know, Paula, maybe I just have a lot of patients who've already been on the gabapentin. And so but I, I've really had a lot of success with valproic acid too, Darlene, especially people who um, they haven't, you know, tolerated benzodiazepine withdrawal management, or they have other reasons why they can't be on gabapentin. Valproic acid it can be really, really helpful, especially if you have someone who has a history of a seizure disorder. Loading them up with valproic acid can just give you a little bit of confidence that you're covering your bases there. I, I think it's great. Now, I've used carbamazepine. I used it, got familiar with it using it inpatient. And, you know, like I said, it can be a really helpful augmentation medication, but you can use it um, on its own. And again, dosing it quite highly because you're covering withdrawals, not a maintenance dose. This is a withdrawal management and then you would taper it down to typical dosing levels. But for the use of alcohol withdrawal management, I use carbamazepine in the order of about 200 milligrams QID. Uh, keep them on that for about five days, get them to steady state, and then begin to uh, taper it down from there. Just a recap. So medications for outpatient management, you have gabapentin, Average dosing, and this is assuming they're not already on it, you're going to be four to 600 milligrams, even up to 800 TID for two days, and then tapering down from there, 300 TID, 200, 100, two days each at those doses. And then often you can maintain three to 400 milligrams TID for one to two months. But do 
do monitor the gabapentin closely. There is some increasing even abuse with gabapentin. I don't give multiple refills a night. And so I just do, even if I have a patient who I'm maintaining on it, just doing 30 days at a time, you can monitor it a little bit closer. Valproic acid, 500 milligrams TID, five days, and then tapering. Carbamazepine, 200 milligrams QID for five days and then taper. Exactly. And don't forget, so don't forget if you're using valproic acid to get LFTs and to do a level on day five, if you're going to keep people on that high dose. I would think all of these you're going to get there in the office. You're going to get baseline labs on all of them. Absolutely. Yes. And then you should get it, absolutely get a level a week later. So you're going to be doing a repeat. You should have a formal follow-up with them no later than a week later and just to evaluate. And that would be a great time to get your valproic acid level. Right. And outpatient labs for alcohol use disorder, I I get a CBC with diff. I get a CMP. I get MAG and FOSS. And I get a PTINR. Those are kind of the basic labs that I get you know, I just keep it fairly simple, but and then I just repeat those ones that I'd repeat a CBC and a CMP and a MAG and FOSS when I see them back in five days for a formal follow-up that for outpatient. Great. I think that's great. Okay. Now, inpatient management. This is your expertise, Paul. So this tell us what your go-to is. Well, I mean, inpatient management of alcohol withdrawal, it's just like any, any other hospitalized right. diagnosis, you want to get a really good history and physical and lab studies. I get the same lab studies that I just mentioned, CMP, CBC, uh, PTINR, MAG, and FOSS, and then a blood alcohol level and a urine drug screen just to see what else is going on. Yeah. Uh, blood alcohol level gives you a lot of information in terms of you know when the person says they had their last drink according to and relative to how high their blood alcohol level is. Um, I really like to study their labs very closely. You can learn a lot from patients' labs. Um, CBC will indicate if someone has macrocytosis, just kind of lending to the diagnosis of chronic alcohol use. If they have leukopenia, that shows me that they likely have bone marrow suppression in relation yeah. to their long-term alcohol use. So this, again, just kind of tells me this person has significant physical consequences to their drinking. And then I always pay close attention to platelet count. Now, this can be artificially high when people first admit because most people who come in intoxicated or in early withdrawal are dehydrated. Uh, And then as you rehydrate them, their platelet levels will drop. I always watch platelet levels because it's a very good indicator, of course, of liver function. If you have someone coming in with platelets, uh, you know, less than 50 or even lower, then I really cautious and want to then work up their liver function more closely. CMP is obviously very helpful because you want to watch for acute electrolyte abnormalities, which are very common with significant alcohol intoxication intoxication and withdrawal. So you may commonly see hyponatremia, especially with um, heavy and high volume beer intake. So we all know about beer potomania. Very common to see potassium abnormalities, hypokalemia that needs to be replaced, obviously, needs to be monitored. You need to follow up any potassium that you replace and make sure that you really did replace it and it's not dropping again. Then, of course, LFTs, 
looking and seeing how patients look, bilirubin, AST, ALT, and ALK-FOS, and what the pattern is there. Folks who have high bilirubin obviously more at risk. So there's certain things that will stick out as being more severe, hyponatremia, high bilirubin. And also noticing an anion gap. Those patients coming in who are really intoxicated who have an anion gap, you know, there's lots of mechanisms. There are several mechanisms, I should say, for this. But it's basically a state of extreme dehydration lactate overload due to the metabolism of alcohol. And I explain it to my patients almost like this is a form of alcohol poisoning. Your body hasn't been able to metabolize all the alcohol that you've taken in. And we need to make sure that we give them enough hydration, either orally or IV, in order to resolve that anion gap. And then you know, of course, magnesium chronically drops with heavy alcohol use and in withdrawal. And what I've noticed clinically is that magnesium will initially look normal, but if you recheck it on day two, three, or subsequent days of admission, it will drop. And I think that gets missed very commonly. So I would urge people managing patients with alcohol use disorder and alcohol withdrawal to follow the mag serious serially and make sure that you kind of aggressively replete it because magnesium deficiency is can contribute, like I said earlier, to the a lower seizure threshold. So you want yeah. to maintain a magnesium level of at least two. Um, so I don't know what, you know, some lab values will say that 1.7 is normal or 1.8 is normal, but I would err a little bit on the side of caution there. And uh, of course, give IV mag sulfate for very low mag or oral sulfate for low mag if people can tolerate it. And my preference over the years has been slow mag or magnesium boride. Patients seem to tolerate that well orally as opposed to magnesium oxide, which can cause uh, diarrhea, which is kind of the last thing. Further lowering electrolytes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, you bring it up. We need to stabilize. You'll stabilize their potassium. We got to get that mag up. Exactly. And then you want to watch the FOS. I think we probably worry about FOS more than we should. Of course, though, many of patients with severe um, alcohol use disorder may are malnourished. And so they are at risk for low FOS. And you can replace that orally most typically. And if patients are eating normal diet, um, their FOS normally comes up on its own. But you need to follow that. Are, are, so, you, are you replacing it separately or in a multivitamin? Um, most multivitamins have a little bit of FOS, but I don't no, replace FOS unless it's really low. And then I'll give yeah. them an oral replacement. We have we developed um, an electrolyte replacement protocol in our hospital based on an ICU protocol. So I worked with our pharmacist, medical pharmacist, and she's amazing. And she helped me develop a protocol that if FOS is below this level, we give this much. And I don't see nearly as much chronic hypofos as I do hypomag. And especially if people are eating and drinking even a little bit, they seem to be able to maintain their FOS levels. That's it pretty much for their labs. Obviously, if they have abnormal PTINR, you you want to you know, investigate further if they have really significant liver disease. Occasionally, if someone comes in really delirious, I will check an ammonia level and just make sure that we're not dealing with hepatic encephalopathy as well. We talked about uh, blood alcohol level and urine drug screen is going to give you some other information. But um, important other management tips, obviously, you're going to do frequent vital sign monitoring on patients with alcohol withdrawal. In our hospital, we do it Q4 hours. We actually would do it more frequently for people who appear quite unstable or if there's anyone that's kind of kindling and is has really high pressures or tachycardia or their temperature is going up. And then, of course, we do CWA monitoring as well. 
Uh, we give thiamine quite aggressively. We use the cane criteria to determine needs IV thiamine replacement. Explain, explain the cane criteria. Sure. The cane criteria helps you determine who needs more aggressive thiamine repletion other than just oral repletion. Everybody who's drinking alcohol Maybe. should have oral thiamine. Absolutely. No doubt about it, right? We probably miss way more Wernicke's encephalopathy than we realize. So the pain criteria was developed to diagnose Wernicke's encephalopathy or um, to help you determine if it's if it's uh, existent. And if you have two of the four criteria, then, then you probably have Wernicke's. And that would be a nutritional di- deficiency of thiamine. So honestly, most people with alcohol use disorder meet this criteria. One, because they are not eating a well rounded whole food diet. They're on skipping meals and eating their calories and relying on alcohol to fill their bellies. And number two, alcohol actually reduces the absorption of thiamine. So for two reasons, almost everybody who's drinking um, a significant amount, certainly enough to warrant an inpatient admission, has nutritional deficiency. The second criteria is altered mental state or a memory uh, cognitive dysfunction. So you can check this on in your exam and you can do mini mental status testing. And I'm always amazed at the answers that come out of people's mouth. You know, folks are very good at putting together their history and they may seem quite congruent. And then you ask them, you formally test their cognition and they will um, actually be quite off. And they may, you know, it might just be on one of the testing parameters such as serial sevens or um, recall. I find that recall of three items really gets a lot of people. Um, And many of these patients will confabulate. um, And they're just used to doing that, I think, as part of their disease. But if they're confabulating throughout their history, then they not only have Wernicke's, they may even be up more on the spectrum of Korsakoff's. So you have to do formal testing to really get this. I mean, some people, obviously, their memory or their mental state's altered, but I really recommend, especially residents, medical students, fellows, really get in the habit of formally testing memory and do it every time you see these patients and choose a different task every time. But recall three at one in five minutes is very helpful. Serial sevens is very helpful. Um, naming the, you know months of the year backwards, things like that. So that's the second criteria. Third is an oculomotor abnormality, specifically uh, ophthalmoplegia or nystagmus. Okay, so horizontal nystagmus. And so you have to do a physical exam that, um, obviously, to tell. You can actually do it quite easily. You can then check for the fourth criteria, which is cerebellar dysfunction um, or ataxia. So we normally do, I normally just have patients stand up and see if they can even put their heel to their toe. I don't even have them walk sometimes because I know they're going to fall over. Or you do rapid alternating movements to see if they have cerebellar dysfunction. So they meet two of those four. Them. Yeah, I mean, just sitting, if you, yeah, if yeah. you don't even think they can yeah. get up, just flipping their hands up and exactly. down their lap. Exactly, know. flipping hands, rapid alternating movement, that's another one. So they only need to meet two or four. So let's review them. Nutritional deficiency, old memory or mental state, motor abnormalities, most commonly ophthalmoplegia. So you're looking for that range of motion with visual um, span, looking, following your finger without moving their head and their eye just doesn't track. It just stops or nystagmus, and then cerebellar dysfunction, so ataxia. Then they need IV thiamine. And there's two different protocols uh, that you can do. You can either give 500 milligrams IV three times a day, 
for nine doses, or you can give it until you have improvement in those four criteria. So it depends on if you're going to follow the British recommendations or the Canadian recommendations. Um, in my hospital, we kind of do a combination of both. We aim for at least nine doses, and then we continue beyond nine if there has not been significant improvement of um, the ataxia or the ophthalmoplegia or the cognition. Uh, obviously, you give folate as well. We give a multiple vitamin. We provide fluid resuscitation. It's amazing how much better people feel when you give them some fluids because, again, people come in significantly dehydrated when they have been drinking heavily. Um, and then you offer any comfort medications to help people whether their withdrawal period, whether that's clonidine as we discussed, whether they need something for sleep that's not addicting like trazodone, uh, whether they need a PPI to help with some gastritis, um, and then any other medications to help deal with nausea, vomiting, or headache. And then you monitor them and inpatient management of withdrawal, benzodiazepines still first line, okay? That is what we use. And depending on your institution, you may use chlordiazepoxide or diazepam. Those are the most commonly used long-acting benzodiazepines. They're preferred over short-acting because they give people longer-term kind of coverage of their symptoms. We do use lorazepam for patients who are older, such as over 60, or who Liver have disease. hepatic, yeah. exactly, hepatic impairment, yeah. or retory disease. So I do not give Librium chlordiazepoxide to anyone who has COPD or sleep apnea. And I'm telling you, I've had more people get completely snowed or drop their SATs because they got loaded up on Librium and they ended up having sleep apnea that was undiagnosed. So also look at your patient and determine, is this person really good for Librium? Do I really look, want to look load? Look at their neck exactly. <laughs> Do you really want to load this person up on a very long acting respiratory suppressant while going through alcohol withdrawal? Or do you want to use something that's a bit shorter acting? I think that is so key. I mean, yeah. you got to look at 50% of probably your patients coming in are going to meet one of those criteria. Right. The other thing is I don't use uh, chlordiazepoxide in patients who have significant hepatic impairment. So yes. I would say five to 10 times upper limit of normal. Then I would uh, opt for something that's not going to be, you know, have active metabolites in the liver. So I'd use Ativan for that reason as well, or lorazepam. So, you know, there's there's much to be said about symptom-triggered versus scheduled protocols for alcohol withdrawal. And if you look at up-to-date, they talk about lower hospitalization days with symptom-triggered approaches. Mm -hmm. You really have to be able to trust your nursing staff and the patient to report accurately to be able to treat people adequately with a symptom-triggered approach. Scheduled approaches may result, according to the data, in a slightly longer hospital stay, but I also feel like they may be safer if you're not sure if patients are either going to report accurately their symptoms, because really the CUA scale is largely subjective, and if you're relying on nursing staff to report patient symptoms accurately. I'm kind of a big fan of loading people up at the beginning, covering my bases, because the highest risk for bad outcomes for alcohol withdrawal happen within the first, you know, 48, 72 hours. Once I think we're in the clear, then I switch it to symptom-triggered care. Because once you get behind, the opposite of that is getting behind the, the, the game, and then people just can't get well, and you may even head in towards delirium tremens. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's ways to determine how much of these medications you should be giving someone based on how much they've been drinking, right? Because And you can use it as a vague equivalency. If you think, well, this much alcohol, you know, this amount of alcohol is vaguely equivalent to this amount of benzodiazepine, and then you cut that in half and you start there. Or you can use a more simple approach and say, well, anyone who's drinking more than a fifth equivalent 
of hard liquor or a pint would meet, you know, necessity for kind of a high dose protocol, such as, you know, 50 milligrams of cordiazepoxide QID on day one, you can kind of make that approach as well. And then, of course, you're going to taper it down according to patients' um, improvement and how they're tolerating it. And most alcohol, inpatient management of alcohol withdrawal should take about four to seven days. It shouldn't be two to three days. Sometimes I'll see people after they've been released from the hospital after a two or three day inpatient stay and they're still sick, you know, and they've, they've yeah. just been cut off their Librium at 150 or 200 milligrams the day of discharge and they, they don't feel well. Unfortunately, I think I see that too much. Some of this is insurance. It's very frustrating that we have this. Some, there's nothing magic about three days. I don't understand yeah. this concept. Uh, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Another goal that we have that is not used as much anymore, it depends again on who your mentors are and who you work with and which institution, but phenobarbital is a great medication. I mean, it's very old and we know a lot about it. And it's certainly not safe for everybody and you have to monitor patients, but it is absolutely fantastic for the management of alcohol withdrawal. And uh, it has the benefit of being able to be kind of front-loaded or you can use it in kind of a loading dose way, or you can just use it similarly to how you would use a long-acting benzodiazepine such as chlordiazepoxide. And I love using phenobarbital for patients who are also abusing benzodiazepines because you're just switching to another drug class or to patients who have just not felt very well on chlordiazepoxide, it makes them feel kind of drunk or they stumble around or they feel too sedated. Or for people who I know I'm going to need to get out of the hospital quickly. So for example, I have someone coming in and they're just like, I've got to be out of here in three days, doc, there's no way I'm staying. Then I will give them more of a loading dose of phenobarbital and know that it will self-metabolize over the next two to three weeks. I have to feel fairly confident that they're not going to go home and drink <laughs> on top of that loading dose, yes. but it can be really, really helpful. It's something that we should probably teach learners more on how to use just so they have that tool. I think that's great. In the environment that we live in, I feel like you're running into this more, more than we like. We need options. It's just an option. Anything else? Take home message. Take home message. Well, we have a whole, the whole kind of unspoken topic that we will get to that management of withdrawal is not treatment. It is not the yes. answer to patients who drink alcohol in a way that is ruining or threatening to ruin their life. It is only a stepping stone to get to a place where then they can then begin to work on maintenance. And uh, I really want to stress that because so many families and so many patients and maybe providers think, well, if I just detox this patient or if I just help them stop drinking, they'll stay stop. And that's just not true. If it worked that way, if patients just needed help stopping, then everyone would remain quit. And that's not what happens. Alcohol use disorder is a chronic relapsing condition of probably the most severe type, right? And it's very complex neuroanatomy that goes behind that. But this is just to get people to the point where they can begin to work on, on what it looks like to not drink alcohol. And I think we need to really delve into that next of what can help people, what medications help with alcohol use disorder, with cravings, what recovery programs have, the research to back them up, what kind of support patients need and what they can, what they can expect. But everyone deserves compassionate and educated and evidence-based withdrawal management, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. And we need to realize as doctors, nurse practitioners, etc., that we are only managing and seeing a fraction of people with alcohol use disorder. I mean, about 10% or less of people who struggle with alcohol present for care. 
the rest of the people are doing it on their own. They're either just continuing to drink or they stop on their own without our help. The people we have the privilege to help, you know, we need to do a job and we need to screen and look for others maybe in, you know, in need because we certainly are underrepresented in terms of those uh, we are treating. Absolutely. And that's what we will get to. Stay tuned for our next episode of Management of Alcohol Use Disorder. Until next time, hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.